Well, as I said, we are diving into a conversation here about small groups, and we're, start, we're going to be starting a series next week called Wannabe, and when we're looking at a conversation uh, about small groups and all these things, I usually want to give you guys that uh, challenge forward, uh, why we need to get deeper in. In fact, um, I think for me, one of it's funny we talk about middle schoolers, I think one of the things that fo- middle schoolers are so simply focused on is really that whole idea of the crowd. Somebody's watching. I actually, because I'm per- still evacuated, haven't been able to go home yet. Um, so one of the funny things about being evacuated is you don't get a lot of time with your sermon and you wind up with all your important stuff in your office. And so in my office currently is uh, all of my journals. I've been journaling since I've been about 14, at least that's when this one started. And what's interesting about my journals is you kind of, they're sitting there, so you might as well piece through them and look at them, is I start laughing at myself because it's pretty obvious, and I know this in my heart, that um, I have a problem, and that problem is that uh, I started early on, is that when I'm journaling, I didn't, I'm not journaling for myself. Somewhere in there is this mentality that I'm journaling for some future generation who's going to be reading my journals, which is really stupid. I get that. It's kind of arrogant and weird, but it's like, that doesn't help when they publish C.S. Lewis's journals, and I realize, I'm not C.S. Lewis. What am I talking about? But, but what happens is that early on is this ridiculousness of a 14-year-old mind going like, somebody's going to read these one day, so I'm going to instill my great wisdom inside of it. And so um, 14-year-old wisdom is about to be disseminated upon you, and it's pretty sad. Um, like it, it, some of it, sometimes I'm like, oh, that, that's interesting, considering I wasn't that strong of a Christian or really much of a Christian at all. But uh, it started off with just like one of them, and I, I can remember thinking, oh, people are going to read this one day, so I'm going to definitely, definitely write down my wisdom, and never thinking I was going to make fun of myself when I did it. Um, and so the first one is, uh, when something goes wrong, God made it go wrong for a purpose. Mm. I think that's true, but it's pretty much like fortune cookie. Watch out, fortune cookie people. I'm going to start a new job. And this is one for Hallmark people. Out of all games, love is the hardest to win. And when you do, you have the, lo- you have the luck of the world and the help from the Lord. Wow, that was pessimistic. So uh, obviously, if, if you read this, you'd understand why. Um, the, uh, the other one that I thought was really odd was, you know, Prayer is a strong letter to Santa on Christmas. I'm like, yeah, that's stupid. And so finally is, uh, is this one, and this is the one that it kind of was funny because when I read it, I was like, oh, that's so appropriate for what we're talking about today. And, and it fits in our current culture right now so much. It says, if you're not yourself, you're no one. And I'm like, hmm, what in the world does that mean? If you're not yourself, you're not, and in this culture right now, it's a, a you be you culture, right? It's a do you. If you're going to be anybody, you got to be you. And so know who you are and so be that, you know, kind of aspect is in this world. It was obviously trickling around in that time, in my time period too. And as I started thinking about this whole idea of journals and be you, and if you're not you, you're no one, this thing, it's just the funniness that occurred. I, I wrote my journal in a journal, um, I had a generation of youth that started rolling through my, um, my youth group, and they started writing their journals online. It was called Live Journal, and literally anybody and everybody could write on Live Journal their journal, and they all thought it was private, but anybody could read it. So they're like writing how they hate people and stuff on their Live Journal, and their friends are reading it, going like, did you know so-and-so hates you? It's like, and it was just the dumbest thing. Like, kids didn't realize that what you put on Facebook, what you'd put on your MySpace, what you'd put on Live Journal was public for everyone to see. And suddenly, I think somewhere along there, the consciousness caught up, that, that they all realized, oh, everybody is reading these things. So one generation, this young, the young millennials that I was working with, didn't know it was public. Then they suddenly all realized it was public. 
And now, today, we were up at DeLeo Park while the fires were burning, kind of watching and observing how close they were going to get to the homes at Sycamore Creek. And, you know, I'm with, a, I'm with a guy, one of my neighbors, and we're watching this scenario, and these little junior high middle schoolers are running around doing their little, you know, because for some reason, middle schoolers are into somersaults and flips and stuff, and they all do it all the time. It's really weird. And, and they were into that, but one of them was holding the camera, and this girl does her somersault and flip, and she says, and behind me are the fires, and uh, the fires out here are the holy fire, and I want you guys to see all this, and then like me on my YouTube channel. And it was like, sure, she was literally trying to promote her own self using the fires behind her. And I'm going, that is a great picture of where we've come. When we're in front of a crowd, we're being trained, whether it's by the celebrities of Hollywood, whether it's by your Facebook, your Instagram feed, your Pinterest, your you name it thing that you're into. So many of us have getting, easily gotten caught into, I need to put the best photo on there. I'm not going to put my ugly photo. I'm going to put the nice photo. I'm going to put the fun trip. I'm going to put the exciting thing we did. And then we have that movement that's shown up right now where you say, well, I, you know, you got to be authentic. And so we put our authentic photo that's been photoshopped up there, right? And we try to make it clear that I'm being authentic in this photo. And it's like a celebrity trying to claim they're authentic. It's like, you know you're pretending to be authentic because you want to look authentic, and it just doesn't work. We're faking it. And the danger in our current culture is that whenever we're around a crowd, whenever we find ourselves amidst a group of people, the tendency is one of two things for so many people, either to fake it and look and perform and act in a certain way so people like us, or to hold back and not give much of ourselves away at all in fear that people won't like us. I think Timothy Keller, um, in one of his books on the self-forgetfulness, said it well. He said, when, you are, when you're not known and loved, we're okay with that. We like it. But when you're known and, re- and, you're, hate- and you're rejected, it is the largest fear of the human soul. To be known and not loved, to literally be seen for all of your, your flaws, and all the garbage of your soul, and all the mess that you're in, to reveal that and have somebody say, mm, no, I don't want to be anywhere near you, is the largest fear of the human heart, is that ultimate rejection. And praise God that God knows you perfectly. He knows all of your flaws that you will ever have all the way into the day of your death, and, be, and, he, and he loves you anyway, 100%, cares about you, sees you perfectly who you are, and has not pushed you away. He's called you by his Son to receive him. And yet, we then are left in a state where we want to we wanna grow. We want to change. I'm calling this wannabe because I really want to challenge us as Christians. We all want to be like Christ. We know God's loved us. We know he's received us, and we want to be like Jesus. But here's the problem. With that knowledge of that, there's what I want to be like, Jesus. He's patient. He's loving. He's kind. He's gentle. He's self-controlled. And I look at myself, I realize that's a pretty big gap between being like Jesus and being me. And so what happens is church doesn't become a place where we get together and where we're really honest about where we're at. Church becomes the biggest fake zone on the planet. It becomes a place where we can yell and scream and argue and just be frustrated and we pull into the parking lot and we get out and we're like, we're good. How are you doing? Oh, I'm wonderful. How are you? Oh, this is awesome. You just screamed at your children. They're crying and they're wiping their eyes. We're okay. Dad said I had to be good, you know, and they're walking into class and then they're giving prayer requests about how bad your life really is. Maybe that's just my kids. Um, I think the children's ministry knows more dirt about me than anybody because my five, four children, but... We, we have this reality where we got to fake it, and that lands on the stage too. I mean, you have to 
only reveal so much. You have to only act in a certain way because you don't want the pastor to be the one who's like failing with his children, instructing you on godly parenting. You know, that's hypocrisy. That doesn't seem right. And so there's a danger even for the pastor, even for the staff or elders to be above reproach in appearance, but behind the scenes be struggling. And, and this is the problem because here's the truth. We may not want to reveal ourselves because we're afraid of burdening somebody else with our, our baggage. We may not want to reveal ourselves because we're afraid we're going to be rejected. We may fake it and pretend because we just want to be liked and it doesn't really matter. But when that happens, that gap between who we are and who we want to be like in Christ cannot be brought together because you need other people to do it. You need other people to enable you to grow, to move you forward, to, to enable you to be transformed. I mean, other people is a key in the development of our spiritual life. In the book of Ecclesiastes, the author Solomon, who is the king of Israel and one, the wisest man in the Old Testament, says, two are better than one. Be, better than one. Why? Well, because they have a good reward for their toil. In other words, when they work together and they work hard, they produce more together than do alone. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. Woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Later he'll say it's a three-chord strand that's not easily broken. It's the strongest form when you have a group around you. Two, one, two is better than one. Three is better than two. A group is the strongest thing. You want to have this unity because you're going to get more out of it. And one, one, um, one leader I love to listen to says you will go further faster with other people around you. This is true in all areas. We were at the zoo and we were walking along. My son, Jonathan, loves reptiles. So we had to go to the reptile cages and walking around the reptile area looking at all the different snakes and the monitor lizards and all those things. And we come up on the rattlesnake. Now, I seen rattlesnakes out there, but this guy was looked like a boa constrictor rattlesnake. I mean, big, fat body, huge, filling up the tank. I'm like, there, that rattlesnake's gigantic. I've never seen a rattlesnake like that out in the wilderness. And the reason that rattlesnake's so gigantic and fat is because there's a zookeeper who understands reptiles who is feeding him the exact right diet, dealing with all of his diseases. He's got a veterinarian who loves him. He's probably been the best cared for rattlesnake in all of San Diego. You know what I mean? And here's the thing. That rattlesnake's going to live longer than a wild rattlesnake. He's going to be healthier than a wild rattlesnake. Because when you have another person who's, who's caring for that rattlesnake, they develop better. Those animals live longer. You get the most lifespan and the healthiest life out of them. Now, you can debate whether they should be in zoos and all that stuff. Again, that's a conversation. But, but it's true even in plant life. If you leave a wild fruit tree out in the wild, they produce little stubby fruits. Then they produce all kinds of just weird, junky, stubby fruits, and they get gnarled and twisted, and they, they have rotting branches on them. There's, they're prone to disease. Fruit trees don't grow well in the wild. You take it out of the wild, you put it in a garden, you cultivate the soil, you feed it well, you cut back the suckers, you move off the branches, you give it good air, you pluck off so that you only get two or three fruit per branch or whatever, and these fruit trees explode with fruit. They're more productive, they, they, they grow bigger, fresher, fatter fruits because there's someone caring for it. We, grow, we go further, faster, we grow more to what we ought to be when we have somebody around us helping us. I mean, think about it this way. 
If it was really that you didn't need someone, why is it that a professional baseball player has a pitching coach or a batting coach? I mean, they're the professionals. Why should any professional tennis player or golfer need a coach? These guys are the pros. They don't need a coach. They know they're pros because they have coaches. Coaches are there because they see what they're doing. They understand what their mechanics look like and where it's off. They're adjusting them so they can stay at a professional level. Everybody goes further, faster with somebody else, with others around them. Here is the problem. When we, though, when we land with other people, we wind up in what I call an other trap. The other trap is while we need others to grow, we've been trained instead to pretend or perform or even keep away so that we never end up growing. That when you gather in front of people, when you stand in front of a crowd, when you gather in front of others, when you're sitting in a group or when you're sitting, you got to pretend to be good and I've got everything put together because I, I want you to like me, but that hinders you from actually becoming the kind of person who's likable. While we can pretend to be like Jesus, we look like hypocrites, we act like hypocrites, and everybody knows it because we're supposed to be like Christ, but we're pretending. See, the basic case I want to make to you guys today is to be who I want to be requires others to know me and empower me. To be who you want to be, if you want to be like Christ, it requires somebody to know you. It requires other people to know you and empower you to that goal. You cannot simply just think, I'm going to do this by myself. It's not going to happen, and it's never going to work. We need others in order to grow. And so let's focus in on this for a second. Let's just take the first part of this. To be who I want to be means others need to know me. I really kind of want to lay this out in some different ways because the, the other trap again is when others are around me, I'm prone to pretend or I'm prone to back away and, and not, give my, not give myself out, not to be honest with where I'm at or who I am. And so we need, we need, some, we need to understand how we're working in dynamics. And I'm going to give you some information called proxemics. And I think this will help you out. It's a, it's a social science. It's kind of like social science bedrock, actually. Um, been known for about the last hundred years. has been proven over and over and over again. And proxemics is the study of how we as human beings work in certain settings of groups of people. And it starts all the way on the right with this public setting. I want you guys to grasp this for a second because I think it'll help you, especially some of you men who, who find it difficult to be honest and open. Ladies, maybe you're, you find it difficult to be, to be really revealing who you are because of you know, the rules of identities and all these different things. But public spheres start this way. It's 100 plus people and more. So anytime you're in a large crowd, whether you're walking in the mall or you're downtown Disney, whether you're at church or whether you're going over to crossings or whether you're, you're at the movies, even in an airplane, you're in a public sphere. And when you gather in the public sphere, what they find is we've all gathered in hundreds, not to get to know each other, we gathered in hundreds for a particular thing that we all desire. There's some kind of, um, some kind of peace that's being sold to us, given to us, or or, or thing that we need. And so we all gather for that thing. So we stand in, stand in rows and listen to the concert given because we all want to hear that band. We, we go to that movie and sit in rows to watch that very thing given. We sit at church and listen to the sermon. This is what happens at the public setting. There is no real interaction that's going on with strangers. That's why you feel so weird in an airplane. You're in the public setting. You've all gathered to get on the plane that's going to take you there. And then you got to sit down and it 
intimate level next to somebody you don't even know, and the rules are don't talk to each other because you're in a public sphere, you're here to get somewhere, and you're dropped into the intimate sphere with somebody you're not comfortable with because now you're only a couple inches away. You ever had that weird thing where you're like, hi, hi, how are you? Good. Where are you going? Same place you are. We're on the same plane. Yeah, got that. I'm going to put my earbuds in now. You know, that whole interaction that occurs feels awkward because you're living in a public sphere, but you're trying to figure out how to live the intimate distance from each other. You see, a public sphere, actually, they've shown, they've measured it. On average, you're 14 feet away from that thing which you're desiring to get information from. 14 feet away from the movie screen, 14 feet away from the pastor, 14 feet away from the, the shopping mall or whatever, wherever you're going to get that crowd interaction together. And it has nothing to do with you revealing anything about yourself. Because you can come and go from church all you want, but people will never get to know you just because you show up at church and leave. Because you're coming to gain and gather and go home. The next level down, though, is the social sphere. It's about 20 to 70 people who gather together. And this is different. This is more like your barbecue um, your barbecue at home, your cookout, your party, your tailgate, your, your hang time. Maybe it's about like when you leave here today and you go out into the foyer or you go to a men's group, you'll find that groups like men's ministries and stuff really only grow to about 70 people unless they change the way they do things because it's about getting to know each other. Women's groups is about getting to know each other. The foyer is about getting to know each other. You're going to wind up kind of walking around. When you're in this setting, you're only going to be about 14 to 4 feet away from each other. 4 feet is about the distance of a handshake. And you're going to be shaking a hand with somebody. And here's what typically happens when you go to an event where it's like this. You're ready to share glimpses of who you are. You might tell a story about who you are. You might tell a story about what happened to you. Oh, yeah, we got evacuated the other day. It's pretty funny. We're all hanging out up front. And then you tell this story. It's not intimate, personal information, but it's enough for people to go, oh, that's, that, that, you're, you, you're giving me a little bit about your life. Cool. I'll share a little bit about my life. And when you're in the social sphere, what's happening is you're passing this kind of story information back and forth to each other. You're opening up just enough. Introverts, you hate this sphere. Because you're like, I got, my life's boring. I got nothing to tell people. You'd rather skip this sphere and jump right down to the intimate sphere where you want to talk to people and get into the nitty-gritty of life. But the social sphere is important because it's the social sphere that if you don't get used to it, you'll never meet those intimate people. So most introverts have a hard time going, where do I find friends? Because they don't understand the social sphere. Just plan a couple good stories and start sharing them here and there. Just open up and what will happen is that when that person shares back their story, eventually in a social sphere you go, dude, I read, I, dude, I don't get it. We just clicked. You ever said that about somebody? It's because you met them and you were sharing stories enough or you were at a business meeting and they kind of, you kind of thought the same. And you gave just enough that, boom, something clicked. When that happens, you will move into the personal sphere with that person more likely. And that's what happens at church. If you're new to church, it's not that we ignore people or we think, oh, all these, or, or that we, we don't want to get to know the guests. The guest is walking into the public sphere. They're nervous, and then they're in the foyer, which is the social sphere, and they're getting a handshake. They're going like, oh, okay, I guess I get to say hi to somebody. That's nice. And they sit down, they get what they need. They want to come, kind of experience and get out, but we want to connect with them on a social level. And yet, they'll walk in, what they're going to see is these little rings of people. About four to 12 people standing around. You ever seen these? Watch when you come in after I can't do it now that I've told you about it. But watch everybody who shows up at, before this for next service. They're going to stand around about groups of four to 12 talking to each other because this is their friends. They're comfortable with them. They're talking about what's going on in their lives. Sometimes they'll ask, when you ask the question, so how are you doing? They're actually going to answer how they're really doing. 
It's not going to be, oh, I'm good. High five. Thanks for asking. You know, moving on. That's social stuff. No, in this level, it's how are you doing? Oh, not that great right now, man. Can you pray for me today? This is, this is tough. And it's the personal sphere that you actually begin to open up and show your warts. You're sitting four feet to two feet from people. You'll sit next to each other. In your, that's why we want a, a gap of about a seat usually as Americans. Sometimes it's two seats depending on who we are. But you'll sit next to your intimate or personal friend and feel comfortable. Because what you have is a, a knownness about you. You're known and you're accepted you're, so you're able to open and be personal. It's safe. And this is huge because this is the level where change and growth begins to occur. You're able to reveal yourself. They're able to pass back to you information. You'll be able to challenge each other and grow dynamically. And then when you get to the intimate sphere, it's even closer. Notice only two to three people at this point. You can only have intimacy with two or three people there. So you can't have intimacy in that smaller unit. It's in the very smallest unit you have intimacy. And what I mean by that is they know that you're like, dude, I really contemplated killing that person the other day. And they're like, oh, yeah, I get that. You know, they'll, they'll just listen to you. Uh, when you're at the personal level, they're like, oh, should I need to call someone? That sounds bad. But at the intimate level, they're willing to overlook your, your deepest, darkest mess. Sometimes you become codependent. Sometimes you become, to a, you become a person, you're so intimate, you can't, you, you can't accept that this person's broken. You're going to look past and blur their problems. And so growth sometimes can't even happen at the, in, at the intimate level too much because you, you're just willing to look past things. And so all of these dynamics are existing in a church. Here's the thing. We discovered this in the 1900s, but God already had it laid out. He's already shouting it at us throughout the Scriptures because the church isn't supposed to be a place where you fake it all the time. And yeah, at the public level, maybe that's what we're doing is faking it. Maybe we're at the social level, we're just trying to present our best social media presentation of ourselves that we can because we want people to like us. But really what we need to do is we need to have a place where we can be real so we can change. Where we can understand that to be who I want to be requires that other people know me. It's not going to happen at the public level. Not really gonna, it's going to start happening at the social level. But we need that personal small group level. Notice how the church was organized in the beginning. It says, Acts chapter 2, it says, and day by day, attending the temple together. So just so you get this idea, the temple was a large complex area where the Jewish people came every day in the droves, hundreds and hundreds, thousands of people, and they met in one location on the far side of the temple called Solomon's Portico. And Solomon's Portico was the largest gathering area in all the temple where someone could stand and preach about the Torah. And so they would gather every day Day by day, attending the temple, listening in the droves and hundreds and hundreds of people, thousands of people as it began to grow in Jerusalem to the apostles preached the gospel. And there, they together, and then it moves on together, and breaking bread in their, where? Their homes. Some homes were capable of handling 20 to 70 people. Some homes were capable of handling only 4 to 12 people. But they gathered in smaller units. They received food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Notice, they ate together. That's at social level. They even had community together, which implies that they were getting down to that smaller level of four to 12 people because the homes weren't all that large in some cases. And yet the intimate group is obviously in the family unit. But they go on to say, and because of this combination of how the Lord is working, the Lord added their number day by day, those who are being saved. A couple of things I want to point out here. God, first of all, notes the big isn't bad. There's a lot of people out there, the megachurches are evil, and blah, 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 and they're bad. No, big's not bad. Big's about movement. 
When a church is big, it has movement. There was lots of movement happening in Jerusalem. They had lots of capacity to send to a lot of locations. They had a massive ability to mobilize where a small church is even trying to gather together can't mobilize like a massive church in the same direction is able to do. Because big brings movement, but small brings change. When you're only focused on big, you're going to end up all faking it because that's the level of the, the public and the social. You're going to go big and you're going to have movement, but you're not going to be known. You have to go small to truly have change. To truly become who you want to be, you've got to be known. And known is not happening in big. Known is happening in small. Churches that only focus on small wind up being really well-known and sometimes really unmoved by the movement because they love each other and who, we don't want anybody broken. It's called a click. When you combine big and movement and small and growth, you have a deep and a wide, you have a, a strength that's built in and an ability to be like Christ in the, and be known in the midst of a movement that's large. And so God puts this together. He puts it into those defining moments. And what I want to focus on is not so much the big, but the small. And that's why we're doing the small group. Small group is the place where change happens. Small group is the place where you're known by those you feel safe with. Notice, sometimes that may mean you join a group and you, they get to know you. You share your testimonies, you get engaged, and they go like, hey, you're cool. We accept you. And you're like, okay, I can, I can tell you that I, I'm really impatient with my kids and I've been yelling at them lately. Hey, me too, man. Let's all pray about that. What are we going to do? You know, we want to be like Christ. We don't want to be impatient anymore. How are we going to work this out? So you're known. This is, the, this is the truth, whether it's in spiritual life, in work life, in education life. If you're going to have any movement, you've got to have a baseline. Isn't that true? You've got to know where you're at. You've got to know where the kid starts in order to know where you're going to get them to in education. You've got to understand where, where you're at as an organization, where you're truly at, what's really happening in order to become where you need to go. They, they call it seeing yourself truthfully. This is also true for us in spiritual life. In fact, the, um, the one who led this church, the, uh, the pastor of this church, would be known, after the apostles had taken off, his name was James, the brother of Jesus. He wrote the book of James, and he, he said it this way, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working, as it is working. And he's saying, listen, you guys, we need to be in a place as a church where we're going to confess, where we're going to be, show our baseline, where we're messed up. So we're going to start right now in the back of the room, right back here. You can go ahead and stand. I'm just we're not going to do that, obviously. This isn't the right location. This is hundreds of people. This is not the place where you do that. It would take way too much time. And churches that do that, they all feel really connected and they shrink really, really fast. But small groups that do that feel bound and close to each other, able to pray with each other and lift each other up. You're able to begin to find a baseline. And what you're saying is, this is where I'm at. I want to be like Christ. I want to be loving, but you know what? I'm really struggling with forgiving this person who's hurting me right now. I want to be gentle, but I just find I get so angry and I just so freaked out. I want to hit something. And I'm really hostile. All right, well, what are you going to do? To, what are we going to do to see you grow in that? I want, we want to pray for you. Thank you for sharing that. Whenever somebody confesses something to you guys, you should take that. Not as like, ah! 
you're an evil human being. No, you should take it as a compliment. Because they're telling you, I feel safe with you enough that you would receive me. So receive them. Receive them. And be willing to receive that. Be willing to pray with them because we're to confess to each other. And when that happens, we pray for each other. You've just taken the steps toward healing because now you're known. God already knows you. God already loves you. And now he shows you that through his people, he loves you as well. And development can begin. But this happens in the small group. This doesn't happen in the large group. And we need this kind of stuff because guess what? We're just blind to ourselves. Do you remember the first time you heard your voice? I'm not talking about the voice you hear right now when you're talking. I'm talking about the voice when it's recorded and you're like, I sound like that? You ever had that experience? It's weird. I get it all the time, actually. It's even harder for me to go through the spiritual growth campaign, to be quite honest, because we videotape me and I'm sitting there with my small group going like, yeah, I got to leave. This is just awkward. And so they're, they're like, hey, great job. Let's ask the pastor. What do you mean by that? I don't know what I meant by that. I recorded that six months ago. You know, it's just kind of this moment where you're looking at yourself and going, I do that. That's weird. What's that twitch on my neck? That's odd. What is that? You know, I mumble. You have this sudden experience of yourself that everybody else gets to experience except you. And that's the point. You don't see yourself. You don't know how you're coming across in the room. Sure, your spouse says, you're really being a jerk right now. I'm not being a jerk. You look like one. No, I don't. This is just how I was born. You know, it's like, no. You need someone else. You need the mirror. And you need them to love you in order to bring that about. And that's, and that's the only way that we can get that baseline to change. And that's where we come to that to be who I want to be means others. I, mean, I need others to empower me towards my goal. Not empower me to be me. I'm not saying you do you. No, I'm saying you need other people to empower you towards being like Christ. And this is, this is found so clearly to me in the book of Ephesians chapter 4, as Paul's kind of laying out, the, um, the, he, as he planted churches, he begins to explain how churches function. And he starts in verse 11, as he says this, and he gave the apostles, um, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers um, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Let's just stop right there for a second. Notice this, he says, he gave you the staff. That's how I like to read this. Apostles and prophets and evangelists. This is just staff. He gave you these special elders and staff members, and their job is to hand out equipment and teach you how to use it. Their job is to make sure you've got everything that you need. And so our staff has worked hard so that you can start a small group with your friends who you feel safe with, or you can join a small group, and you don't have to freak out, I don't know what to do. We're going to equip you. Um, if you stick around afterwards, what we're going after this service, um, you can start a small group. You can be a small group host. And what you do is you open your home up, you serve a snack, and you just read the manual. See, they'll give you an entire manual on how to do a leader guide. And this leader guide is, it just gives you all the information you need. You got the DVD to throw it in there so you can learn and all together. And you go, wow, I don't have to teach a lesson. Nope. You just have to know how to read out loud and ask a question. And so you get this opportunity to simply connect, to give you the information on how to do that, serve in a snack. You pass that around to other people in your group, your other friends. Or you say it's potluck, everybody brings something, however you want to do that. They've got a guide they're going through. They get to study it. And what we do on Sunday is going to be studied on the midweek. And so it informs on Sunday. You're all part of it. You all got the same info. You study. And now, boom, you're going to grow in it. We're going to apply it to our lives. You can do that with a group of friends. 
You can do that with a group of, of other Christians on your block that you know that you would love to be a part of, or you can join one that's out there. But we're equipping you with everything that you need, so this isn't rocket science. It's something that you can do. And Justin's team is, has been working hard on this for several months to give you guys that opportunity. Our job here is to enable you to the work of ministry with each other, to care for each other, to build a relationship so that when somebody breaks their femur, you, that group will watch your kids and they'll take off. When you're being evacuated, you get phone call after phone call after phone call, people from your small group going, come to my house, come to my house. Do you need anything? I'll help you get your stuff out, which has been happening all over the place. I want to encourage you then to consider that when it comes to spiritual development, then the group is not only helping hold you up in life, it's also helping thrust you forward and empowering you. And so you wind up as it continues that the goal then is that we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. And what he means by that is we have a unity together. We're all marching in the same beat, march the same drum, that we love Christ the same, we're living for Christ the same, we're sharing the same Christ. And so we wind up having a maturity to mature manhood, to measure the stature the fullness of Christ so we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried around by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, craftiness, and deceitful schemes. Look, this is just classic. I want to be like Jesus. I'm going to become like Jesus because other people are going to empower me. We're, this came from the Bible. Recovery groups have taken this and applied it to where you have to baseline yourself, confess, start at step zero, move to step one, two, they put a structure to this, but this is classic Christianity. This is what happens in the church, not the big church, but in the church, small portion of the church, the small group, the home group, the oikos, as they called it. And when that occurs, we get to maturity. We become like Christ. We don't just want to be wannabes. We actually become like Christ because we're holding each other up. I would say to my group, listen, I'm struggling right now with being gentle in my words. I feel like I'm cutting my children down. Here's what I'm asking you guys to do. Hold me accountable. I want to say five positive things to every single one of my children every single day. Would you guys ask me how I'm doing with that? Would somebody text me? And then they, we encourage each other. We pray for each other as we apply those pieces. You see, and then we're able to, as we build those relationships, as we continue to grow in this, we start to mature. And then the other people are able to point things out. You see, this happens because we don't get tossed around and get into doctrinal debates, as he says. Rather, we speak the truth in love. That means I'm going to tell you the truth about what I see because I care about you. And in a small group, you're able to build the bridge of relationship that's able to carry the weight of truth. To build the bridge that can carry the weight of the truth because you love each other, you care about each other, you're willing to expose just enough. This is an intimacy. Remember, you're not going to expose all the garbage of your life, but the things that you're working on, this is personal stuff. So you're not going to shout about it in the social, the public sphere. So you need somewhere you can reveal enough of your struggle that other people can pick you up and lead you forward where they can help you as you suffer alongside another sinner if you're married or as you deal with singleness all by yourself. They're there to carry and walk with you, to help you grow, to hold you accountable, and to lead you forward. And when this happens, here's what goes on. We grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ and from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. In the big, we have movement. and the small, we have growth. When we have strong in the small, the big continues to grow. You can't have one without the other. 
It's, they're bound together into the ability to develop and grow. And some of you guys might be going, that's awesome. That's not happening in my small group. I want to challenge you to be the first in then. Then when you start, be the first to share your testimony. It's a great way to open the door to knowing each other. Talk about how you came to Jesus Christ. Talk about where your sins were and what you're struggling with currently. Be the first one in with one, one thing that you're trying to improve so the other people will follow after you. And if they all keep quiet and look at you and go, wow, we're writing that down to tell the pastor, leave that small group. It's not healthy. Start a different one with people you know are safe and are willing to help you grow because the small group's like a team. That team enables you to develop and grow. Think of it as gathering around a team where you're going to say to the people around you, this is what I'm struggling with. I need help with this. This is my plan. I want to develop. And they're going to be like, yeah, they're going to root for you. They're going to press you forward and you're going to develop. And we start realizing that this isn't some, you know, counseling session, guys. This isn't a, hey, hey, yay, we're all going to be all excited and cheerlead and things like that. And you feel like this is gross. No, it's a place where we, we work together. We confess sin. We're accepted. And yet at the same time, we set a plan to be like Christ. And our team around us helps us live out that plan. And when we stumble, they pick us up because we're not alone. And we get more out of life because we go further, faster together. If you want to be like Christ, if you want to be who you want to be, you've got to start with people knowing who you are and empowering you to that goal. What we're going to do is encourage you guys right now to, to, to sign up and join one of those groups, one of those small units, to become part of that, or to start one of those units. I'll talk to you a little bit more here at the end of the service about what to do there. We're going to let you guys out a bit early so you can do that. But we're going to, instead now, we're going to have the, the worship team come on up, and they're going, to, they're going to sing with us. But before, as they do that, I'm going to pray. So would you join with me? We're just going to ask God to just kind of open our hearts up and prepare us with this. God, would you please just enable us and strengthen us to be a people who are unified in smaller units so that as the movement of the larger goes, it is not a movement of human hearts and sin, but instead it's a movement of people seeking to be like you. That God, in the small, we might be transformed and develop deeper and deeper lives following after you. We'd no longer be wannabes, but actually be people like you. And God, you are, Jesus, you are a great evangelist. And there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people surrounding us that don't know you and we would love to see them know you and the, we don't just want to bring them into a church we want to see them actually become like you God so help us to form these groups for the sake of others for the sake of our own souls and for the sake of following you we ask that you'd help us do that in Jesus name amen and as we continue on we're going to sing we're going to sing this song about our God and that he cannot be stopped that who that no one can stand against our God. No one can stop him. No one can hold him back. And that, that's not only in the large where we're evangelizing and seeing people come to Christ, but it's also in your own soul. If you have this struggle that God can't change me, God can't develop me, and I'm just going to keep failing, I want you to think through that line as it comes up time and time again. And realize that God cannot be stopped. God cannot be held back. You, you cannot, he, he cannot fail in your life. So sing that out with us. And I'll be back up here to give you guys some further instructions at the end of the service.